0: Welcome back to another episode of Soma Soulworks. Where do faith and art meet? What does it mean to be made in God's image, knowing his nature as a creator? This podcast is an open-ended wrestling with God at the seam of Christianity and creativity as artisans working in the world of arts and entertainment. This podcast that you're about to hear is part of a series of a half a dozen interviews that we've done with creatives that we know through just general connections throughout the industry. What we want to do is Soma Soul Works really tries to include and lift up people who are creatives of one kind of another. And we would say creatives happen in all shapes and sizes. There's visual artists, there's musicians, there's coders. And we want to celebrate all of those. So what we've done here is created a couple of interviews with people who've worked in that creative space at different places and try to see how they found that their heart was taken care of by God, by others, and just by their own life. So I hope you like this series, and if you like these, let us know and we'll do more. So with that, enjoy the podcast. All right, welcome to the Soma Soul Works podcast. Uh, today we have Scott Adams, who uh, we'll talk a little bit about his career here. Um, but as Scott requested, and we would do anyways, we're going to start with a little bit of prayer. And Scott, would you like to lead out?
1: Jesus, you are Lord and Savior, and we praise your name. We thank you for this opportunity to virtually touch other people's lives and and hopefully, in a very positive way, that you can use whatever happens here to your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.
0: I right don't. Amen. Thank you very much for that, Scott. Um, so I think, as I mentioned, just kind of before we started, what we're really hoping for here is just to give give people a glimpse into your story, kind of how you got where you are, where, what started, what started you down the road, both professionally, spiritually, if you like. Um, and so that feels like a good spot. Like. I know some of your story, but I'll, I'll, I'll kind of introduce how I I knew Scott Adams was when I was uh, when I was in I don't know I want to say eighth grade or something like that. I remember playing your games on my buddy Keith had a, a, a Texas Instruments computer, and, uh, and it was the kind of thing where it was it was this whole new format of text adventures. Needless to say, this was a, a format, and I don't I don't want to overstate this. So uh, you tell me if I'm saying it too long, but I I think you kind of invented the genre or darn near close. And uh, so that was, what was this, like early 80s? Is that kind of where you got started?
1: Um, that was, the TI was early 80s, but the, the game itself uh, had roots back in the late 70s. So,
0: so tell me, how, how did you get started? How did this whole thing come about?
1: How far back do you want to go?
0: I suppose, where does it feel? Yeah,
1: <laughs> We can go back to the early 1960s, um, because the roots started there. The early 1960s, computers were around, but they were giant mainframes. And uh, banks and universities would use them. Somehow, I ended up on a field trip, and I believe it was probably the University of Miami, uh, to get to see a computer. I remember I must have been in elementary school from uh, the pictures in my mind we got there and there was a visitor walkway. We could go down and you could see the computer uh, through these big glass windows. And you saw all these people walking around and doing things uh, with the blinking lights and the tape spinning and the uh, typical uh, 1960s uh, setup for what a computer looks like. In any case, I saw the computer room and I said, I want to go in there. I want to find out more information. And I was told, no, you can't. And I, I remember thinking as a kid, Oh, really? No, I'm getting in there somehow. <laughs> um, you felt I, your calling. I did. Fast forward now to uh high school years. In eleventh grade, I got accepted for early admission to University of Miami. I was supposed to go into pre-med. Uh this was all arranged nicely by my mother, which um didn't really have much of my input. I remember I remember that summer going to her and saying, I really don't feel ready for college. I would like to go to my senior year at high school. It took some time and it wasn't an easy uh, argument to win, but I did. And I was able to go to my senior year in high school. And that really changed everything. Our high school, North Miami Senior High in uh, Miami, uh, was selected to be a test center for all of the state of Florida. And they put a com- computer terminal in the math resource center. Um, it was an IBM Selectric typewriter, box of paper, uh, and a modem that connected to the actual computer elsewhere. And it was an IBM 360, and the language that it was running was APL. And it was there, sitting there. I came in one day, and I saw this thing sitting there. I asked Mr. Nordmeyer, who was the proctor there and the math science teacher, what this was. He says, well, we're told it's a computer terminal we have absolutely no information about it have fun (laughs)
0: knock yourself out
1: (laughs) that's right and i did um i remember buying my own copy from the university of miami of the language and reading it um it was a whopping like ten dollars back then for that book it sticks in my mind because ten dollars was actually major money right on Um, um i think i was earning like 25 cents an hour on odd jobs and stuff to give you an idea. Um, anyways, uh, once I got the hang of it and was able to do the, the, something similar to a Hello World, I decided I wanted to tackle a big program. And the very first program I thought about uh, was, and it was Tic-Tac-Toe. And that dates back to another story, but we can skip over it. But basically, I saw at the World's Fair in New York, uh, an IBM pavilion where they had tic-tac-toe running. And that also fascinated me. So I thought, wow, I can teach this computer to play tic-tac-toe. I don't know how many months it took, but eventually I did. I got permission to go to the school early and the janitor would i would knock on the door. One of the janitors would come and let me in. I'd go up to the resource center for school and I got permission to stay there after hours. And I'd stay there till seven, nine o'clock also on the computer. And eventually I got tic-tac-toe running. So it was in my blood. I was really enjoying it. So now fast forward, it was in the mid seventies, a homebrew computer came out. Um, Actually, I'm skipping over a lot of stories. There was a homebrew computer that my brother invented at home, the world's first basically bit slice 16 bit computer that he put together from bit slices of another machine. Then uh, my brother, one of my other brothers, wrote a keyboard to memory typewriter, and then I wrote a game. So I had a Space Wars game running on that. And that's, you can still see that on my website because my, Brother uh, took uh, videos of it, which was kind of unique. Another computer came out that was advertised. It was a kit. Back then, there was no such thing as a, a, a built computer you could have. It was called Sphere. It's the same time as uh, MIT's Altair. They're pretty much in the, in the within months of each other. The Sphere was unique in that it was not just a box with switches and lights. It had a keyboard and monitor as part of its design. And so that was the machine I decided I really wanted to have. At this time, I was already working as a mainframe programmer. I had gone through school, I had gotten my degree, and I was working downrange, uh, which was the Air Force Eastern Test Range, and I was working for Space Defense Command, uh, who had the contract, who was contracting out to the company I was working for, RCA. So... I saw this home computer and thought this would be really cool to have, and I ended up uh, buying it and putting it together, literally soldering it and wire wrapping and everything. Got it running, and quite a few stories behind that, and uh, finally had it going, and so what did I want to do with it now that I finally had it working? Guess what? I wanted to do a game.
0: Of course you did, right. <laughs>
1: Um, at the time, in the arcades, there was a tank war game where two players would play. They'd have two levers, each player, one, two. Uh, if you pushed them both forward, your tank went forward, you pulled them back, your tank went back. Either one forward and one back would either turn you left or right, and there'd be a fire button. So I thought, I'd like to do something like this on this computer. Um, first problem was computer had no graphics. It was a text-only machine. There's no, no graphics card. Um, it was built around the 6,800. And so I literally had to invent my own graphics card, wire wrap it and put it in the machine. It was just simple bit graphics. If uh, the memory bit was on, you got a dot on the screen. If it was off. You didn't, it wasn't high res, but it, it worked. And I probably had one K of memory. It, it may have had more. i Anyway, I got this tank war game going, um, and about this time, the company that made the machine, this this took a while, had their first, what do you use your uh, Sphere computer for? So I went ahead, took a movie of it, and sent in the code and the schematics of the video card, and I sent the whole thing in, and I ended up winning their first ever what do you use your sphere computer for, which was kind of cool. Uh, the company later went bankrupt. Uh, the founders died. Uh, the videos I have no idea what happened to it. It was super 8 uh, film, so they're probably tossed long ago. but I have the memories so it was it was a lot of fun. Um, now, moving forward uh, a few years, the first appliance computers started coming out and the first one that I became aware of, Appliance computer being one you didn't have to build from a kit. You could actually buy it off the shelf and it would work. It was Radio Shack. They had a TRS. It wasn't called the Model 1 back then because there, was, there wasn't there was any more models. It was just the TRS-80. It came in different flavors. There was Level 1 and Level 2. Level 1 came with a primitive, basic, and 4K memory. But level two came was 16K and something very excited. It had basic interpreter that I had heard about and not had a chance to play with by a little company called Microsoft. This was literally one of Bill Gates, one of their original forays into getting into the computer market. Um, I got the machine and started playing with it. I wrote a couple of dumb games. One was called Dog Race, where you just watch Bits run across the screen, see who who won. Uh, I was working at Stromberg Carlson at the time, and they were a telephone central office provider. They used to do telephones, then they were moving into uh, the digital central office. They were just then starting it. So they had a large staff of programmers there as we were developing for them their first digital central office for the telephone systems. Up up until this time, everything was uh, relays and switches, when you dialed a line. So this was going to actually be digital. Somebody mentioned that there was a really cool game that the IT department had. We didn't we didn't get to work on the mainframe. We all had terminals, and the IT department ran the mainframe. Well, I found out about it, and I got to play it, and it was Colossal Caves Adventure. Uh, this was written by Dan Woods, Crothers and Woods, rather. Well, I think it was Will Crothers and Dan Woods, or I may have... I may have that backwards. In any case, somebody had written a Splunking program. Um, They they were a a Splunker, and they wrote an exploration program where you can go around and explore. And somebody else took that and thought, hey, let's put some things into it. And Colossal Caves came about. So they're truly the beginning of the genre of text adventures. That is the granddaddy of them all that everything else spun off of. The adventure game was uh, exciting to me. I did what I did in high school. I came in before work and played on it and stayed after work and played on it. It took me a week and I got to the end and I finished it. And I told everybody, this is really cool. I'm going to write something like this for my TRS-80 at home. Um, Because I'd been looking for a game that I wanted to do. I wasn't sure what I was going to do next, Basic had something called strings, which I had never encountered before, the ability to manipulate uh, text as part of the program very easily. Uh, Up to this time, I'd been using Assembler, Fortran, and COBOL, and none of those really lend themselves to string processing. So this game, I thought, well, it'd be really cool to do something like that. So I told people, colleagues there at Stromberg, and basically got the reaction, you're You're crazy. You're not going to get, this is is a major mainframe game. It's taking up all of memory. You're not going to get something like that in your little tiny toy computer. And I thought, yeah, you're probably right, but I'm going to try anyway. So what I ended up doing, instead of writing that game, I never got to see the source code or anything like it. I just got the flavor of how the game played. I started writing my own game from scratch, thinking about how to do it. And what I would do was I wrote my own language to write the game in because it wasn't really going to fit in BASIC very well. I wanted something that would be more compact. It was um, uh, an interpreter I wrote to understand the language I was writing and then the the, uh, compiler that would take the language I was writing and put it in so the interpreter could, could do it and tried to make it as concise and compressed as I could and i literally wrote the game the same time i'm writing the interpreter and the compiler as i thought about things that i needed because i started off with well i'll need some rooms so i made a room array okay i'm going to need no i'm going to need verbs and nouns so i wrote a verb array and a noun array i'm going to need some way to determine actions and that's where i started getting having to get clever what do i do when the player types something and how do i determine the outcome and so my language developed from that when I finally got done, it was Adventureland, and it fit in 16K. And basically, I just kept writing and going until I filled up 16K, including <laughs> the interpreter and uh, the language for it. Um, and I wrote, I wrote this language. This the the interpreter I wrote in BASIC. So I was using strings, writing in BASIC. So assuming you had the 16K level two machine, you could load this BASIC program and the database, and it would then proceed to play the game. And I showed it to people, and they thought it was cool. I made cassettes of it and took to a homebrew computer club. I was in the Orlando area at the time. People really liked it, and so I started selling it. And then kept getting more and more requests for it, so I was selling more and more. Then one day, got a call from a far-off exotic land that I had heard of but never had a chance to visit, uh, it was Chicago. Uh, I grew up in Florida. I lived my life in Florida and really hadn't traveled much. So there was a TRS-80 store up there. Uh, somehow the guy had gotten a copy of one of the tapes or he had seen. I put small ads in some uh, small hobbyist magazines. He may have seen an ad and ordered it. Anyway, he called up and ordered 25 or 50 tapes. I can't even remember how many it was. Probably it was twenty-five. Um, and wow, this was a big order, and literally tried to sell it to him for the price I was charging for the game. And he had to explain what wholesale was because I didn't even know what that concept was. So, this was the beginning of Adventure International. This is where the whole thing started trying to fulfill this first order from a Radio Shack computer store. And then from there, it took off.
0: That's a really like just the way that you set that out is seems like going back to high school. Like you just had this this heart to create unknown things from zero, like that just always was. You you saw an opportunity, you went after it. You kind of built with that kind of thing. Like it sounds like that's just always been your the way that your heart has worked. Like I'm going to make something brand new. Yeah, right on. Right. Okay. So uh, I I know the story, but for folks who don't, Adventure International grew. Um, We've got we've got uh, multiple stories. I don't. I couldn't. I wouldn't even know where sort of what was the biggest, what was the most exciting. I mean, and you've got a bunch of them, but eventually that led to license deals, Marvel, all this kind of stuff. Let me see kind of where this, you know, fast forward a couple of years, I don't know, 10 or whatever it is, and kind of tell me where this got to.
1: As you mentioned, uh, the games did well and the company grew. We started then getting approached by outside companies asking us to do games for them in their, area of expertise Um, one of them was um, buckaroo bonsai which is a new movie coming out it was going to be a uh, they decided it was going to be a cult classic Uh, had jeff goldblum in it and a number of others and they were deliberately making it to be a cult classic so they're trying to get into all the markets to support it as such and one of the ones was the nascent home computer industry they wanted to have a home computer game for it so they contacted us Uh, Another uh, company that contacted us, as you uh, mentioned, was Marvel. Um, Marvel Comics, at this time, um, had done one video game, I believe, and they heard about the home computer industry, and checking around, uh, there was... uh, they basically asked, who, who, what company, who should we go to to try to get a game in here? And they said, overwhelmingly, everyone told them to go to Adventure International. And so it was quite an honor to, to get contacted by them. Very unique. They gave us the option to do whatever we wanted. And it was basically me at the time. I was the creative uh, team of one for the game. Whatever I wanted to do that I could, I had rights to... This was after a lot of contracts and everything got drawn up. I had the rights to the entire Marvel universe, and I could do anything I wanted with any characters. Uh, the agreement was going to be for uh, a dozen games over a span of time. A dozen or a d- ten. Okay, memory is failing me. Somewhere in that that range. Um, while there, I asked them uh, if I could get a, more information about the Marvel universe that was growing. They said that was funny. I should say that because they were in-house developing something called the Marvel Universe, and it's as an encyclopedia. And so it was going to be published. It wasn't quite ready, but they were able to give me a pre-release copy, and it literally outlined every character they had ever done, and where it fit into the Marvel Universe. So I had a lot of fun with that. Um, I told them I was going to start with Hulk as the first character, and they said, "Okay, that's that's a good strong character, but don't you?" really want to do spider-man i mean he is our best bestseller and i said i absolutely agree spider-man's your bestseller that's why i want to do hulk first because if i make mistakes i want to do it on hulk i want right. Spider- i want spider-man <laughs> to be much better when i get to it also at the time i was in the process of expanding my engine to go from a simple two-word uh, sentence parser to um being able to handle uh, complex sentences such as pick up the axe and throw it out the door type thing and but it wasn't quite ready either so i developed talk i was also developing the technology for what was going to become the spider-man engine uh, along the way at the same time other at things this point,
0: have, yeah at this point had you worked in uh, kind of where were graphics in this in this model where were you on your engine
1: okay at this point we had started putting in graphics and so uh, Marvel gave us the, the okay to uh, use their art in the games. We, we literally drew the art, and they vetted it. It had to match their style. Everything we did had to be approved, and they would make corrections as needed. Uh, the original text adventures were still there. The graphics was an overlay so that the game could actually still play on a machine that had... No graphics, well, say TRS 80 Model 1 at the time. There'd be a fully playable game that was text only. On a machine like Apple, Atari, and so forth, you would then have the ability to have the graphics version. And obviously, you need a lot more room than a cassette tape, so these would be coming on floppy disks. There was uh, the impetus for going into graphics came from uh, Ken and Roberta Williams from uh, sierra online Uh, ken early on was a salesman for adventure national from what i understand talking with ken uh, roberta uh, saw my early classic games the ones without the text uh, really enjoyed them and decided she wanted to start writing some games so she worked with ken and between the two of them they they started a, a graphic adventure series which was pretty primitive to start with but just like my stuff was primitive to start with, but then it really, really blossomed. Uh, the King's Quest line came out of that and other things. Um, it was, uh, was kind of neat to see the, the uh, inspiration growing as people thought about what they could do with things. I actually had one author uh, that went and took some of my early classic games disassembled the, and by this time it was done in assembly language. It was no longer a basic program. They disassembled everything. They figured out the language I was using, and they turned around wrote their own database and their own game in it, and then sent it in and says, look what I did. I was like, really cool. So I worked with them to polish it, and there are two adventures in the series of my classic games that were written by outside authors. They were totally separate. Each one finding a way to develop the game themselves, just because they wanted to, and just amazing human ingenuity.
0: Well, let me. There's a couple of things, that's just, on there. Uh, on the one hand, today, this idea, like that, you were given basically a carte blanche with all of the Marvel universe. You're yes. like, I hey, just have fun with that. And you think about that that's in right. today's terms, it's shocking. Like, like yes. oh, my gosh, it just happened there. Um, and that, that it kind of fell in your lap. Like, it's, if I hear you right, like, you weren't looking was, for that.
1: It was providential. God actually opened the doors and and provided it. It wasn't anything I did other than just being prepared and being at the right spot at the right time. You've heard of being in the right spot at the right time. That's important. But you also have to be prepared. Uh, in my case, I had the skill set and uh, the knowledge to do what was needed with what was happening.
0: Yeah. That's wild. Um, and then I also noticed like, so you have people who came to you and if I, if I heard you, right, you could have interpreted that, the, the fellow who sent in that other program, you could have really easily interpreted that as stealing. Right. Yes. Um, and, uh, but instead you took it as I, I guess, homage or like how cool, like you were excited about their creativity. Yeah. Um, I think that's a really unusual way really good way but an unusual way to have seen it. like that's that's mm-hmm. a fascinating story
1: there's there were other similar things um early on one of the things one of the problems we had was um pirating uh people might buy a copy of the game and then make copies and give it away to their friends
0: yeah
1: so that that was lost revenue so we had to start ourselves and other software companies that were coming along had to start putting in copy protection. Um, The Atari 800, 800, 1200 series of computers were very popular. They were growing. The protection we used was on the floppy disk was a very special floppy disk protection uh, for their system. My brother, who is now in California, who's an inventor, uh, was also interested in the Atari. And so what he did was he developed hardware that could break the copy protection that we were doing and turn around and sell it. And uh, I remember I used to send him copies of all our every game, brand new when it came out, I would send him copies of everything he'd do with as he liked. And I never ha- held any ill will for him for doing what he was doing. It was just very clever. He, uh, his drives ran, his hard drives that would replace the Atari hard drive was a far better design than what Atari themselves did. So it it was quite a clever piece of machinery.
0: That's really cool. So let me, let me, uh, we're going to kind of get towards the story place. I want to attach where I, where I first kind of ran into you both sort of uh, at a distance and then in person. So as I mentioned, like I started playing your games on uh, my friend's Texas instruments. And, uh, and I want to think that was, Pirate, it was pirate adventure. Is that what it was called? Kind of been. I, I think that was the first one um, that, that we started to play, and I was I was also sort of like you, like I was fascinated by what this could be, and, and so were my buddies, and so we started writing our own uh, text adventure games back then too. For us, it was uh, it was it was basic. That's that's what we knew, and uh, I want to say we were you know middle school, high school, and uh, and I still I still, still have a printout of this game we made called Boot Hill. And it was just this long chain of if-then statements because it was all in BASIC. I didn't know anything about interpreters or anything like that, so we just did what we what we did, and uh, and we, we would kind of build on this thing. And I remember we we print it out, and it would be I don't know some you know 30, 40 pages or whatever else. And then you remember you used to get those books like here's a program, and you just had to type the whole thing in. So uh, so you know we we sort of like type in the whole program and then add little bits to it. And so there was three or four of us that would kind of collaborate on this boot heel game. I remember when we we first created our our very first sprite, uh, you know, the little guy knocking on a door. And the, these go back to like, they were two very formative pieces for me because it really started that idea. Like, I really enjoy this. I really enjoy making these things. I really enjoy playing them. And so it was a big piece of kind of my, my particular formative story. Just to kind of uh, jump the, the story a little bit, there were two other products that very specifically I remember as being really formative. One was yours. One was uh, Adventure Game Construction Kit from uh, Electronic Arts, really early program from them. Uh, and then the third was, of course, I shouldn't say, of course, was Myst um, when, when that came out. Those three games stood out to me uh, as, as the ones that were really formative. Now, I don't want to give away the punchline here, but something that God has done for me fairly recently, just in the last several years, is he's, he's arranged that I've met all the people who made those three games. And so, uh, so starting with you, I met you when you came to CGDC. What was that? 2016 was that about right?
1: Yes, summer of 2016.
0: And and so this kind of turns a corner of if I if, and I don't think I'm getting this wrong. The story you've told me so far, you were not a believer.
1: Um, majority of that time, correct. So how it, did that how came did you, later? Yeah, that, that came after the the Adventure International National was uh, out of business. And came later in my personal life. At that time, I was going through um, a divorce. Uh, this was in the mid '80s, I think, somewhere in that time frame. And got invited to go to a uh, uh, Florida camp. I used to go. I used to be a camp counselor when I was a te- I was a camper and then a counselor when I was a teenager in the National Forest in Ocala. And I had great memories of being out. Uh, in the in the in the camps so there was a camp going on uh, that was for a weekend and so i got invited to go along and i heard it was a christian camp i said i don't have to go to anything do i i mean <laughs> well no i i knew about christians they were dangerous they they, they did weird things so, i i didn't i just wanted to go because it was a campground and they said, yeah, that's fine. You do whatever you like. Uh, you're, you're welcome. There's free accommodations. There's food. And just be out there and enjoy yourself. So I thought this would be a good time to spend some recovery. I get to the campground. And they it turns out that Friday night, they were having a speaker who was a Jewish Holocaust survivor. And I thought, wow, I really want to hear her story. So I went and I did, and she wasn't only a Jewish Holocaust survivor, she was a, a Messianic Jew, a convert to um, believing Jesus was the Messiah from just pure Judaism. And that got me thinking, and that that was the beginning. Uh, I remember coming back from that and deciding, wow, I'm feeling the Holy Spirit right now. This <laughs> this is this is good. Uh, this was meant to be in here. So I went, and I decided, okay, I've never read the New Testament. I only know of Jesus. I've never read anything from Jesus. I'm going to buy myself an actual Bible that has this New Testament thingy in it and try to figure out what this is all about, because, God, I can't believe that you really want me to be a Christian because, you know, they're dangerous. So I went to a bookstore, and I went in, and I said, um, I'd like to buy a Bible this is a Christian bookstore. And he oh, yeah, we got a whole wall of Bibles. I said, okay, but I want one with the New Testament. Oh, okay. Well, most of them do. (laughs) So, okay. All right. Well, where can I find it? So, I figured they'd take me over to a shelf and there'd be two or three Bibles. They took me over to a wall of Bibles. And I went, what? (laughs) What's going on here? Um, I said, I'm really curious to know what Jesus wrote. And they said, well, then you want something with Jesus in red text, red letter edition. It's called, oh, okay, that's fine. Which one of these have red letter edition? They said just about all of them. So I looked at the wall and I looked, tried to find the smallest Bible I could find, which I did. It was a pocket Bible, tiny print uh, it was NIV. I didn't know it at the time, but it was anyway, I took it home and I literally said, God, you know, if you're really there, you're going to have to explain to me what this is all about, because I really don't believe I'm supposed to be messing with this Christian stuff. More I, grew- dangerous. Yeah. <laughs> I grew up Jewish. Grandfather was an Orthodox rabbi. I was bar mitzvahed when I was 13. Um, I had deep Jewish roots, and I knew Christians were not to be trusted. It was never told to me. It was sort of by osmosis growing up. Anyway, I got the Bible. And so I just randomly opened it. I said, okay, I want to read something Jesus wrote. because I've never heard of him, never heard of what he's actually said. I've only heard that he exists. So I just open it randomly, and I start reading, and I stop. What I'm reading, and it was the Lord's Prayer, and I knew it by heart. I didn't know Jesus wrote it, I just mm. knew, but I did know the Lord's Prayer. And thinking back, I'm pretty sure the reason I knew it was because I believe my third grade teacher in elementary school would start the day off with the Lord's Prayer every this was before prayer was banned from the schools as being dangerous so yep. as a so as an eight or nine year old I had actually learned the Lord's Prayer anyway whoa shocking huh ah, ah, wait oh slam the book closed okay God da-da. I gotta think about that <laughs> you know what, what's going on so I left alone for a day. And you know, I'm coming back the next day, and this time I had a very deliberate prayer, and I said, God, okay, yesterday was, that that was weird. That was definitely a mistake. Um, <laughs> definitely a mistake. <laughs> yeah, um, but if you want to tell me anything about Jesus, I'm, I'm open to it. So I very carefully opened the Bible and held that section that I had read the day before. So just held it and started reading again, picked it up, just random spot and started reading. It was the Lord's Prayer. I slammed it shut, and I said, wait a minute. Hold on a second. I think I know what's going on now. I I need to confirm it. So next day, I asked some friends, "Um, this thing with the Lord's Prayer, it's in the Bible, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's in the New Testament. It's in there a lot, isn't it? must be a couple of dozen times, isn't it? I said, no, no, it's just in there twice.
0: (laughs) You know, like, oh, and I just picked both of them. <laughs> yeah,
1: um, God has since talked to me the same way in, in terms of twos, because that's how I, he seems to get through to me the best. But anyway, that was the point I determined, yes, I was going to accept Jesus as my Savior. And things changed and got very interesting.
0: Wow. Wow. When you came to CGDC, what I remember, you know, and a lot of people had this experience, like, at least the way that your presentation came across. And and if it correct me if I got some of the details wrong. It seems to me that you sort of came to CGDC not really knowing what to do there. Like sort of like, I don't know, I guess there's Christians and they make games and I make games. And so it just sort of seemed to be a fit. But then your presentation really was, I think, a bearing of your soul. Like you were very, mm-hmm. it was your testimony. Mm-hmm. Um, but you were also really candid about stuff that was hard, right? About uh, places where stuff didn't go well. and uh, And you were... You seem to have a, a, a almost a, a, I guess I want to say a contrite kind of spirit to your time. And, mm-hmm. you. And know, the truth is, I think that most people, like you, people respond to that kind of openness and vulnerability. It's That's always, always powerful. And you, sh- in, a, in a really good way, you shocked a lot of people. It was, it was a powerful stuff. And then of course, uh, Roxanne was there. Yes. Um, and uh, so that, that's your, your, your bride. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and so for anyone who hasn't met Roxanne, she is so fun and bright and like just you know vivid she's a very vivid person um with a giant rainbow tie dye kind of a thing right mm-hmm. um and uh, and i think that's where i think that's that's probably where we first ran into you two was yes. uh, john Berkeley and i were there and, and we just started uh chit-chatting and of course i knew your name and i probably introduced myself um but then somewhere in there i think john gave you a copy of wild at heart is that is that correct yes. um yes, did. and uh, and probably at that point we just sort of made friends and I, I think back. I think back how uh, you were the first of those of those three people um, from from my formative thing, where where God's like, let me introduce you to that person who changed your life. And uh, and I, and then I reckon for for a period of time I don't know how long it was. I want to say a couple of years. There was this desire. Like, I wonder if there's something we could work on together. We had just started developing the Redwell property, and it, it wasn't clear at first what that would even look like. But eventually, we came down to uh, to kind of a joint venture on Escape the Gloomer which I think was sort of like you coming out of retirement because you weren't mm-hmm. working in games for a long slot there. Right. And then, and then now Clopus yep. is the name of your current company.
1: Yep. Which um, is God eventually. given.
0: Um, tell me a little bit about Clopus, How, how you, how you got there.
1: There was a point in time. I think it was 2017 or realized was we were going to be starting something. It wasn't going to be Scott Adams grand adventures anymore or adventure national is going to be something new and trying to determine what was that something new. So myself, my wife Roxanne, and I believe John Collins, I think it it was the three of us, uh, decided to have a brainstorming session. And we came up with some points that it had to fit. Uh, Whatever name we came up had to be short. It had to be five or six letters, so it wasn't hard to spell. Um, It had to uh, be easy to spell when you heard it. They had to be available on the Internet and not one that you would accidentally go to a a porn site or something like that, but nobody was using. So we started coming up with anagrams. We were coming up with names. We were coming up with all sorts of strange stuff. And during this discussion, Roxanne mentioned, well, how do you normally ask God questions? What do you do? Because I had done this in the past, especially becoming a Christian. That was the first Route to this methodology. And that was basically I would ask God and then I would read the Bible and see if God would talk to me through the Bible. So while Roxanne and John are talking back and forth, I pull out my Bible, which at this point was on my Android phone as an app. I just opened it to the Bible. And as they're talking, I'm flipping using my fingers, not looking down, just flipping, flipping left, right, up, down, just flipping, flipping. And then suddenly I feel this, I'm to stop and read. So I stopped and I read, and it said, "Jesus was on the cross." I go, "Whoa, okay, this is a powerful place to start." Doesn't give me a name, but Jesus on the cross, and at his uh, feet uh, was Mary, and Mary of Clopas, and Mary of what? What? Never heard that word before. What? Where is that? What is that? So I looked. For starters, very uh, few letters. C L O P A S. Um, looked it up on the internet. Um, there was no Clopas being used for anything. Looked up meanings, and they said that nobody knew what it really was. It was either she was married to Clopas, and was that was her husband, or she was from a place called Clopas. But there, there was no consensus on what it meant. I then did some more just random research, and I ran across a site that said mystical meaning. Of names, and the word "Kolopus" was in there, and the mystical meaning of the name was "glory to the Father."
0: Nice, and that's how you came up with the name.
1: No, that's how God came up with the name. He reserved yeah. that name yeah. for himself for this time.
0: That's fascinating, yeah. and, and, and it, it rings. I got to say, like it rings so true because that's how we felt about Soma. Like I didn't feel like I picked that name; I felt that it was given to us. It's sort of in the mystery of God's providence and His in, in, yes it's called. It's a powerful thought, but now you are re—what's the right word here? Sort of like resurrecting uh, Adventureland, right?
1: It's it's in early access on Steam now. We're calling it Adventureland XL, uh, which has a double meaning: um, XL for extra large. Taking the original classic game that was in two words and putting it in a full sentence system, and then putting a whole new addition to the original game that is still in there. And the XL also stands for Roman numerals, 40, because it's 40th anniversary.
0: <laughs> Very
1: nice. <laughs> At the same time. So Adventureland XL. If people are interested in it, then go to adventurelandxl.com. Uh, right now, it's only early access on Steam, and we're, we're slowly polishing it and getting it to a final state. Uh, the game is playable from one end to the other. Graphics have been put in, but they're not finished. Sound effects, um, some limited, have been put in. They're not finished, so it's it's an ongoing process. Right
0: on, right on. I just think it's such a fun story. Um, just the, the whole thing brings me, I just one it gives me the shivers. Like there's some there's some really cool mm-hmm. Holy Spirit stuff in there. All right, so that that probably is a good place to say, okay, like if this is your story, let me let me see if I can uh, ask you a little bit of of kind of uh, questions about. That I think would be uh, that sh- that showed up. That I'm interested to kind of dig a little bit deeper. One of the things I wanted to ask you is when you look back on the ways in which, let me say this: you said that the Marvel deal was providential. That's the word you used. Mm-hmm. But that happened at a time in your life that was before you knew Jesus. Mm-hmm. So, where else? Do you, like, where do you see that God was moving in your life? Where do you see that God sort of like made things happen? And then, and then by contrast, where do you see that that got opposed and set down and Kind of just reflect on that on that idea, if you
1: would. Um, sometimes I sort of compare it to like Moses. God gives everybody gifts, and sometimes they don't know what they're for or what God is planning for them. In my case, my gift was for just the joy of writing games that other people can do by being able to understand the complexity of a system and breaking it apart. and building something out of it. The path I tread, God already knew the beginning from the end. I didn't. He knew that eventually I would be open to turning to him. And I believe that early on, he was using the the things that I did for, for good and for his glory. I've gotten a lot of email over the years from folks that have uh, played my classic games, and it's, I've touched a lot of lives and all mostly actually everyone that i've heard it's been in a positive way if i ever touched anyone that wasn't uh they, they haven't contacted me some, it
0: to
1: some of the um industry leaders of today of very major software companies and game companies i've been approached by ceos and directors and chairmen of the boards and they, they tell me that a lot of them, a lot of these people that have contacted me said that their start came from playing my classic games. So it triggered something that started. So God was using that. And uh, I just, I just thank God that he allowed me to be a instrument of, of uh, creativity here, of sparking things. I just yeah. hope, hope it goes on.
0: What about on the negative side in the sense like, have you, can you, can you think of places where where people, the devil, however, like, I don't know the stories, like where would you feel like you were pushed back, thwarted to, you know, kind of fought against, especially in the spirit
1: ways. Um, Being pushed back and thwarted would be things that seem horrible at the time, but going through them, it's like, okay, that needed to happen to get to where I was. Uh, for example, Adventure International closing. And fa- to me, it was an utter failure. And that, that was the end of that chapter. So I went back to, uh, my roots of being just a programmer and worked uh, worked in the basically aerospace industry for a very long time as a programmer thinking okay what i did back then was interesting but it it didn't do anything this was pre-internet i didn't know that it had touched people's lives nothing about it um god can use things like that and i needed to use I needed to go through that sort of experience. It's like Moses. He, If he had stayed in Egypt and become uh, Pharaoh's right-hand man, Jews would have probably died in Goshen. We, we don't know what would have happened. But he had to go through uh, his own very major uh, time of, uh, of sorrows running from Egypt. He, he was basically like three different lives. Yeah, no kidding. If you think about it, he had, he he served as a royalty in Egypt. He was then a shepherd in the the wilderness, and then he was a, a shepherd of God's people. So,
0: yeah. But each step I,
1: along the way needed the previous.
0: Yeah, and I, I think if I read it right, like each of those steps was forty years.
1: Yes, um, exactly. Which
0: is, I, it's it's weird for me when I read that. I'm like Moses was eighty years old when he comes to Pharaoh. Like that's you right. Know, he's and then, but he still got a lot of miles left in him too.
1: Yeah, and he could have said, "Hey, I'm a retired. God, go find somebody else." <laughs> I actually that's what I did because in um, back in 2016, uh, CGDC, I came out in the summer, saw you guys uh, there, and uh, CGDC, and I thought, "Oh, this is all interesting." Well, I retired that that December, so. Okay. The, beginning of 2017 it was like okay i'm retired i got nothing to do and 2017 i went to CGDC, and that's when we started talking about the red wall stuff and it's like okay i guess i'm not retired i'm redirected
0: <laughs> just reassigned to a new a new yep. duty station mm-hmm. if you could tell the i don't know 20 year old scott some lesson you've learned just go back like what would you say what what, what did you think that you would see differently what would you do differently
1: Oh, I hope not, because then some of the mistakes I made, I might not have made, and then I wouldn't have become who I am now. Okay. So I needed to make those mistakes. I needed to learn from them. So I wouldn't tell myself anything other than (laughs) "Oh, it's going to be an interesting ride, and eventually you'll realize you need to trust God.
0: I know. I think that that's probably an unusual Perspective, but I really like it. Like so many, so many folks. Of course, I think is regret is that thing that haunts us, right? It's the the coulda, shoulda, woulda, the, the kind mm-hmm. of stuff. And it's uh, it's unique to find people who who process all of that through the lens of be thankful for everything. Suffering causes character. I think that's that's really cool. Um, with SoulWorks, with SoulWorks, I think that the audience that we that we're trying to speak to is what we're calling sort of like creatives and innovators. And one of the reasons we we decided to come here is in gaming, it feels as though it feels as though you're the hub of so many different kinds of creative people. You've got you've got artists, actors, voices, but you've also got coders and musics and everything, like so many creative enterprises all come together in, in one thing. And so it's a neat hub to really to really touch a lot of different kinds of creatives. And uh in one of those, of course, is also the entrepreneur, right? So so people who create enterprises and ventures. So we have a pretty broad definition here and you seemed by your story, like the sort of the, the innovators especially seems to be not just in your blood, but as far as I can tell, it's in your whole family's blood, your brother's as well. And I think I've heard from so many artists that they don't really see how that fits in the church. They can get a job. Like like I should say, if they're lucky, they can find a job, but they're not sure how it fits in the kingdom. They're not sure how it fits in God. And I'm curious how you see that. How how does your creativity or all creativity, how does it fit? What is it, what's its role?
1: Um, it's all a ministry, and if we're doing things to God's glory, eventually it'll work out for the best. The church is not a building. It's the body of believers worldwide, and ultimately our prime goal is to grow that, grow that church so that the body of believers that go to eternity is larger than it is when, when we first start. God has a reason for delaying the beginning of eternity and the end of sin. And part of that is that he knows that there are there are people who have not yet made that choice to trust in God to want to spend eternity with him. Because unless you trust God and love him now, why would you want to spend eternity with him at all? Right. It, it's uh it's a step that we have to make, and our creative things that we're doing need to keep that in mind, and it's hard, but is what we are doing show God's goodness, and does it help grow the kingdom? And there's a lot I do that doesn't, and I, as far as regrets go, that's where my regrets would be, where I do not properly show God's love to unbelievers, or where I do not properly do something that's to God's glory that I regret. Yeah. And, but I know I'm forgiven. so that that's a positive.
0: yeah, I want to say uh, I'm not sure I'm got the right guy, but I want to say it was Brother Lawrence who has this idea when it, when he would make a mistake when he would sin or fail, he would go to God with some some place like, oh, that's a drag, but I'm only as good as you made me, really like I know work in progress, yeah. and so like if I'm failing, then you got work to do. This <laughs> is such an interesting way to approach that kind of thing. Like, wow, it's like there is no condemnation in Christ, and he really, he really uh, embraced. That. I think that's really cool. What would you want to share, just sort of with the gaming industry, with the creative industry? Like, you've got such a great experience, and I'm, I'm, I'm certain that when people hear this, um, folks who haven't heard your story, it's inspirational, Scott. Like, it, it's such a, mm-hmm. it's such a neat story of perseverance, and innovation, and, uh, and you're super honest and open about it, which is also mm-hmm. rare, I think.
1: Um, as you know we've we got the um, game out Uh, we made a game but we don't seem to reach a market with it or reach an audience Uh, um, there are many um, that I know that feel unhappy about that because it's like okay our whole purpose of making this game was so we could be rich and famous and we don't seem to be getting there to me that's a nice destination, and it would be nice if it goes that way, but that's not what creative creativity is about. It's about being honest to the gift that God gave you, and it's the journey of using that gift and seeing how you touch lives in a positive way along that journey. If you have a vision of something you'd like to do and you're told you can't do it, you can make a choice. You can say, okay, I believe you and walk away from it. Or you can try to pursue it yourself. And both paths have problems. So I'm not saying either one is right. It may be you do need to walk away. Sometimes you might have a vision for something that just doesn't make sense. But if you really believe enough in it, and you want to try it, well, You'll make the time to do it. Every time you say yes to something, you're going to say no to something else. Mm -hmm. So instead of watching TV for six hours, you might say, maybe I'll work on my game for six hours or work on my music for six hours or work on my book for six hours. We make choices, and every choice we make has consequences. So try to make the best choices you can. The Bible says we're made in God's image, and I fully believe that. What I don't believe is that it is a literal image, that God is an anthropomorphic God that looks anything like us. I don't think he does. I think he's, he's extra-dimensional. Everything that we exist in, he's greater than that. So being a person or a human doesn't make sense. For him to look like us doesn't make sense. So what I've arrived at as being made in God's image is that he literally gave us a piece of himself in creation, and that piece is the ability to have free will, to make choices. What we do with that ultimately determines everything else.
0: Right on. I probably could not put a better ending on it. Okay. Scott, I want to I wanna thank you very much for everyone who's listening. Uh, we'll make sure to post links and that kind of stuff. Thank you for joining us. This is just one offering from Soma Soulworks, a production of Soma Games. To learn more, check out somasoulworks.com. And we'd appreciate your support through patreon.com slash SomaSoulWorks.